Well, it is good to see so many more of you than we've had in past weeks. I, uh, I too, succumbed to the plague this week that so many of you have, have suffered through, but the Lord is gracious to give it to me early in the week, and he has strengthened me. Thank you for those who prayed. Um, it's been a number of weeks that we have been in this epistle, and I want to come back to it today really um, we're, we're only going to look at one verse, and I, I hope that doesn't dishearten you. I know some would say, could we, could we pick up the pace in these things? And uh, there's, there's a right time for that. I understand that. At the same time, um, I want to come back and be able to, to go back through some things we have in chapter 3 and, and look at this verse. And I, uh, good things are found in small packages, and I, I trust you'll come to that same conclusion by the end. Somewhere in Paul's epistles, you can trace it, he inevitably moves from teaching doctrine, giving instruction, to practice. And that place can typically be identified where he moves from doctrine to practice by the use of the word, therefore. Therefore acts as a hinge, oftentimes, on which... We swing from doctrinal instruction to practical application. And the truth is all doctrine must be followed by a therefore because truth is never just an end in and of itself. Doctrine always has application practically. All truth has implication for daily life and therefore Paul comes to therefore. And this verse this morning serves really as a bridge that connects all of the doctrine that Paul was teaching, particularly in chapter 3, and he will go on to flesh out the implications of that in chapter 4. But the question arises here right at the beginning of chapter 4 as to whether this verse is looking back retrospectively at the things he just said about in chapter 3, or whether this verse actually is looking forward to the things he's going to say in chapter 4. It is a bridge, as I said, to be sure, but the question I'm asking is this, which way is Paul looking as he stands on this bridge? Is he looking back to the things he just said, or is he looking forward to the things that he's about to say? And it's an important question, because in chapter 4, in verse 1, you can see in the latter part of the verse that Paul writes, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. In which way? Is he giving them instruction which is going to follow that will tell them how to stand firm in the Lord? Or is he saying, in all that I've just said to you, stand firm? That's an important interpretive question. And commentators, as I've said from time to time, are divided on the issue. There are good men on either side of this issue. But I believe personally that he is looking back at what he has just said. All that he's just taught the Philippians, he is now looking back and he comes to chapter 4 and verse 1. And you remember that there were no chapter divisions, there were no verse divisions, there was not even punctuation in the original text. These things have been ferreted out by interpreters, and usually they're very helpful, but in this case, I don't want you to make a break 
between verse 21 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4. In fact, let's just read together from verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. This is consistent with the way Paul typically uses the terminology that he uses in this verse. It's a summary fashion looking back at what he has just said, and he will then explain the implications of those things moving forward as he transitions into the rest of the chapter. So the question then becomes, by way of review, what has Paul been teaching the Philippians and us? Well, if you go back to chapter 3 and verse 1, you remember that he tells them from the outset that they ought to anchor their joy in no one else and in nothing else other than the Lord himself. All of their joy rests in God's goodness to them in Christ. You can't find joy, biblical joy, lasting joy, in anything else or anyone else. Christ is the soil, the gospel of Christ is the soil in which our joy is rooted and it grows. And so, Paul goes on to speak in this chapter, and you just heard it read in your hearing, where Paul said, you know, we turn away from all self-righteousness, don't we? All confidence in the flesh, and we look to Christ alone. We stand on him alone. We stand firm in our faith alone. And Christ is our righteousness. He is the assurance of our salvation. He is the promise and evidence of our resurrection. We have fellowship with him because we've been united with him. And we are growing in this life into his likeness. We are growing to know him. It's all about the Lord. We forget, Paul says, all of that which lies behind. And instead, we are reaching forward. We were striving ahead. We're like runners stretching to the tape, trying to to pursue the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we said that that was growing in the likeness of Christ, growing in sanctification. What do we do between our salvation, our regeneration, and our glorification? What is this period of time for? Well, it's for our growth in Christ's likeness. We just sang it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, won't he? That's what we're doing. We're striving for holiness, for Christ-likeness. And we do it, says Paul, together with the mature as examples in front of us. We follow the example of others. We need each other. We need the church. This is how we stand firm together. And stand firm we must, Paul says. And in the church in Philippi, just as we face challenges in our life, they faced some very specific challenges and threats to their faith, didn't they? They faced the legalists on the one hand, those 
Judaizers who were seeking to persuade the Philippians to go back, not to place their confidence and their joy fully in Christ, but to remember that all of this grew out of a Jewish root. And you need to remember that, 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 that the law came first and Moses matters and you need to add Moses to Jesus and you need to go back to all that Jewish ritual and rite if you're really going to be truly saved and sanctified. These people were still entrapped in Mosaic rite and ritual and they wanted to add Christ to the law. And, and these, Paul says in verse 2, he calls them dogs and he says they are the false circumcision, they are evil workers. You need to beware of people like that, the legalists. But then later in the chapter, he comes and he says, look, there's another group of people who are a threat to you, and it is the libertines. It is those licentious people, those who would boast of the grace of God in Christ but show no real acquaintance with that grace because we know that when the, when, when the grace of God is manifested in a, in a person, when they are saved, that that grace instructs us, doesn't it, to deny ungodliness and unrighteousness and worldly desires. There is a holiness of life that follows. These were sensualists who claimed Christ and claimed freedom in Christ, and they were going to show you just how free they were by having no regard for holiness whatsoever. No, they, were, they worshiped their belly. They worshiped their sensual lusts. And of these, Paul says, they are enemies of the cross. So there were those who were the false circumcision, and there were those who were the enemies of the cross, and both were putting pressure on the church. And Paul, in consideration of all of this, all that he has said in chapter 3, then comes to this verse in chapter 4, verse 1, and says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That is the main verb. Stand firm. That is the call. And we're going to look at this verse, we're going to savor it in two bites. The first is this, we're going to spend a significant amount of our time this morning just looking at Paul's personal affection for the Philippians. We've looked at this before, but I'm in no hurry to get past it. Because I believe this is the, the very thing, the very prescription that the American church in particular needs. We need to understand what the church is and how we are to relate to one another and how far short so much of our previous experience in church has, has, has fallen. And then we're going to look not only at Paul's personal affection, but also Paul's pastoral direction to the Philippians so let's consider together Paul's personal affection for the Philippians right after we ask again the Lord's help. Father, I'm a weak man with a weak mouth, and yet you are the one who creates a man's tongue, and you have brought me here this morning. And Lord, I come again acknowledging my own frailty, and Lord, I know how easy it is to, to fumble these things, and I pray that you, for your help in that for these for these who are listening to your word that lord you would enable them to to hear the things that you have put 
specifically and very intentionally in your, in your word. And I pray that you would help me to articulate it in a manner that's helpful to them. And Lord, that you would show us wonderful things from your law, that you would sustain us with a word and strengthen us for the days ahead. In Christ's name, amen. Paul's personal affection for the Philippians. I love this. We get such a clear picture again, and it, it has been shown time and again throughout this book. But Paul's heart for them, his shepherd's heart. You know, nowhere in, in, in Paul's epistles does he string together so elaborate an outpouring for a church as he does here for the Philippians. He has many good things to say about many of the churches. He's got many encouraging things to say, but not even the Thessalonians whom Paul has much to say about. They don't even get so glowing a commendation as this. Paul is just spilling over. And you'll remember he's separated from them. He is in chains as he writes these things. And he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, and if you skip to the end of the verse, he comes back to it again, my beloved. This is the way it should be when all is right between shepherds and the flock. And there are good things here to be gleaned. And you say, yeah, Dave, obviously this matters to you. You're a shepherd, so that would be personally applicable. No, there are good things to be gleaned here for each one of us as we live life together in the family of God, as you live as fathers and mothers in your own families, as you think through the way Paul relates here to the church. Some of these things ought to be characteristic, all of them, frankly, within your, your own home. So nobody's left out here this morning, and I want you to see that what, what is really clearer in the, in, in the original text, what, what, what is very plain there, it doesn't come through, at least in New American Standard, as clearly, I don't think. But Paul has three specific things that he is articulating, three lines of thought as he lays out this text. And, and here they are. We're going to go through each one. But he's going to talk about the way that he identifies with these Philippians. He identifies with them. They are brothers. And then he's going to tell them how he feels about them, that he loves them and that he longs for them. And then he's going to go on to explain to them how highly he regards them for their faithfulness. And I tell you, and I trust you'll be able to see it, there is a pattern for us in this. In that Greek text, it reads this way. Therefore, brothers of mine, beloved and longed for, the joy and crown of mine. He lays it out in three blocks. Brothers of mine, beloved and longed for, the joy and crown of mine. My joy and crown. And I just need to confess to you, it's easy to read things like this and just sort of go, ah, Paul, it's just mindless sentimentalism, right? He's just sort of blabbering. He's spilling over. I want to remind you that when we come to these words, we come to the word of God. Yes, these are the words of Paul as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. 
And Paul is not here merely throwing out platitudes, nor is he speaking some sort of Christianese. That's the way I used to think about it. Brother, yeah, beloved, yeah. That's old King James sort of, sort of nerdy language for the super religious. Listen, it cannot be that because this is Scripture and because the things that are spoken here, while they are truly coming from the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul, they are also coming under the influence of the Holy Spirit who never clutters his language. As Paul takes up his pen or he dictates these things to his amanuensis, he writes what amounts to the very word of God, which is perfect and precise and is tried in the furnace seven times. It is true to the smallest detail. So we're just going to take these things and look at them carefully because God has said them. Look first with me at how Paul identifies with the Philippians. He calls them my brothers. And you go, yeah, big deal. Think of it. What must it have been like to hear those words coming out of this esteemed apostle? Paul was an apostle called of God and duly commissioned. He had seen the Lord. He had received his apostleship directly from the Lord. I mean, you want to talk about an exclusive club. In addition to Paul's apostleship, which in and of itself would have made me feel small, in addition to that, you'll remember that many in the Philippian church came to faith through Paul's witness. He was, if you will, their spiritual father in the faith. We saw that in Acts 16 where we see the birth of the Philippian church. Remember, he comes and, and Lydia, her mind is open to believe the things spoken by the apostle Paul and to respond to them and she and her household come to faith. And then Paul is in the Philippian jail, and you remember the jailer is converted in all of his household, and this group eventually gathered, and they grew under the witness of Paul, and others grew into the Philippian church. And so these people were hearing from Paul, not only as this astute apostle, this, this authoritative mighty man of God, but they were hearing from him as a father, a spiritual father who led them into the faith. Paul could say what he said to many churches and many who came to, to faith through his ministry, that they were children. But Paul never condescended to them like children. He was hesitant to do it. Even the Corinthians. You remember what Paul said of Onesimus as he was appealing to Philemon. He speaks of Onesimus as my child whom I have begotten. And then to Philemon, Paul kind of tightens the screws. You remember that in the argument that he's making? He wants Onesimus back, this runaway slave. But Paul sends him back because that was the right thing to do. Technically, he was the, the, the slave of Philemon, and he was Philemon's property. And so Paul is appealing to Philemon, 
And he tightens the screws on Philemon saying, Philemon, I know you're going to do what I ask because you owe me your own self as well. In other words, not only did Onesimus come to faith through my ministry, but you did too, Philemon. How could you withhold from me? You see, there was this relationship that Paul had with these people as their father, spiritually speaking. And so there's a very definite sense in which Paul carries profound authority and great prominence. He was a father figure to them. And yet, as he writes to the Philippians, consider again with me that Paul refers to them as my brothers. Some of you know I used to teach in the public school system. And there are some former students who the Lord gave me the privilege of seeing their birth in Christ. And they're in their mid-30s, and they, many of them still can't call me anything but Mr. Witt. What's with that? I tell them, look, that was from days gone by. <laughs> it's okay. I try to relieve them of that, but they, they, they can't have it. That's just the way they look at me. Imagine how it would be to see the Apostle Paul. And yet Paul has none of that thinking in his heart whatsoever. He refers to them as brothers, and more than that, very personally, my brothers. Now, why does he call them that? Well, first of all, it's a designation that most accurately describes Paul's relationship to these believers. Christians are brothers in Christ. In the truest sense of the word, Christians are brothers. Those of you who've known a good relationship with a brother or a sister in your family, you know what a delight it is to stand before somebody and say, I'd like to introduce you to my brother. You know that. There is this tie, blood that's thick, and this, this interconnection. Well, brothers and sisters, we are brothers and sisters. And there is an intertwining of heart and soul that exists between us that ties us together, that anchors us as one. And Paul says, long before I was an apostle and long before I was your father in the faith, what, what really is common among us is that we are sinners saved by grace. We've seen the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. We've been brought into the household of God. We are adopted as God's sons and daughters. We are brothers one with another. This is the family of God. One commentator says this, Paul reminds himself then of his essential relationship. He reminds himself and them of his essential relationship to them, not primarily as a spiritual father, not primarily as an authoritative apostle, but as a beloved brother. That's one reason he refers to them as brothers, because they are brothers. There's a second reason that Paul calls the Philippians brothers, and that is because Paul is humble. When Paul considers the Philippians, he, he does not do so with some sort of high-minded awareness of his authority over them, though it was there. 
or of his station as an apostle and a clinging to his title and a clinging to his office, though he had both. No, Paul sees himself as one among them. All of them sinners saved by grace, all of them on the receiving end of God's goodness. Paul had no sense of self-importance. He had no sense of being distinguished or exalted or more accomplished than they. His ministry was received as a mercy, and he believed himself to be utterly unworthy of it. Now, brother and sister, I ask you, whatever your station in life and whatever dominion God has placed you over, do you have this sort of servant's attitude that says, I'll incur the cost, I will lead by serving, I will lead by example, I will go first, I'll be a point man, or do you have the mindset that Jesus condemns of the Gentiles who lord it over those who are under their charge? Do you see what Paul is doing here? The whole argument of his position is that I'm one of you by the grace of God, that we stand on an equal plane and an equal footing, and God has gifted each of us as he has willed by the Holy Spirit. He has made us and placed us in the body of Christ, each one of us, with the gifting that he's given to us. But each one of us comes to serve the whole. Each one of us comes to minister to the flock. Each one of us comes as a lowly servant. Paul never saw himself as a cut above. In his eyes, he was what? The chief of sinners. And he was the very least of the apostles. And he was utterly humbled by God's grace. He understood that anything he was Anything he had, all that he had received was a gift of God's kindness. This is so important that we learn to think carefully about these things because these are the very things that define us. These are the ways that we have got to learn to think. These are the categories that we need to carry with us as we gather and as we live life together. We come here understanding that every one of us, old, young, visibly gifted in, in amazing ways or less so, in Christ for a decade or five or one day, we all enter through the same gate, don't we? We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Each one of us has our place. Every one of us we regard as better than ourselves. We live like Paul with this mindset that is humble and lowly. And we affirm this reality that we are brothers from the least to the greatest of us. And we should treasure that thought. There is a beautiful fellowship shared among God's children. And there is one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father. And we are all brothers. 
And beloved, I never weary of reminding you of these things. And I, my, my encouragement to you this morning is every time you see that phrase, brother, in the Bible, again, remind yourself of this reality because it is precious to us. It's not verbal filler. We are family. And so when Paul addresses them, he addresses them in familial terms. And you must remember again, this helps us, doesn't it, as we think about the church, that the church is about people. The church is about the redeemed people, those who've placed their faith in Christ and have been brought into a unique relationship with one another. So church is about relationship. It's about fellowship. And that is the richest thing on the planet, frankly, relationships are. And, and so we've been eternally tied together eternally tied together, not even just for this life, but for time and eternity, we have been knit together as spiritual siblings and we should rejoice in the fact. So Paul identifies with them as brothers. Next, I want you to see Paul's, as he articulates his deep affection for the Philippians, this is how Paul feels about the Philippians. He calls them beloved and longed for. And at the end of the verse again, he repeats, my beloved. He brackets it. Now, it was one thing, men, I know. It made you a little nervous when I started talking about this brotherhood thing, right? That's, you're getting into my bubble a little bit. Well, let's talk about beloved and longed for. That makes some of you nervous. I know it does. Because it's flowery and it's emotional and it's language that we often say is more fitting for women. But listen, this is not girly talk. This is godly talk. And I'll prove it to you. I, I, I took a plane flight out to Texas for Thanksgiving and somebody just prior to that, had a brother in Christ, had given me a, a book that he wanted me to review and it was on the, the blight of fatherlessness in our culture and a Christian response to it. This book began with a look at the baptism of Christ, and he said there's, there's a great deal to be learned just in considering the baptism of Christ about fatherhood. And the author made this point. If you think about the baptism of Christ, number one, the father is present. He's there. Number two, he said, the father identifies with his son. This is my son. And then, thirdly, the father expresses his love and affection for his son by saying, this is my what? Beloved son. And then he says, fourthly, that the father expresses, expresses pleasure in his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I would venture there's not a man among us who 
would not like to hear those words from their father. And some of us knew that. Some of us intuitively knew that. Some of us heard that from our fathers. Probably most of us never knew it. And I want to encourage you men to think through this. This statement by Paul and this statement by the father toward his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, do you pattern your life after this? You see, this is sanctified sentiment. This is a heart that is filled with delight and gladness. This is a heart that is filled with spontaneous outpouring of delight and pleasure. There is a love of pleasure in Paul for these Philippians. There is a love of delight by the Father in his Son. And Paul here is opening up a window to his heart by opening his mouth by giving a window transparently and emotionally to them by telling them plainly how he feels about them. I'm not lying to you, am I? Look at the words. Beloved and longed for. Brothers, I tell you, the Bible exposes and confronts our cultural caricatures of masculinity and of fatherhood, and we need to be paying attention to these things. Paul loves them, and he tells them that. And beyond that, Paul says, not only are you loved, but I'm here in jail, and I miss you. I long for you. And this isn't the first time that Paul has told them that. You remember chapter 1 and verse Seven, he says, for it's only right that I should feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me for God is my witness. I call God to the witness stand of how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There is this sincere yearning on the part of the Apostle Paul, one that Christ has for his own people. Paul's heart is engaged and it is entangled with these people. There is an ache in his soul for these people because they are what is precious to him in life. It is Christ and it is Christ's church. And fathers, again, brothers, listen, we can get distracted by so many things that are not in fact, relational things. It's much easier to vest yourself in work. It's much easier to vest yourself in a hobby or in pursuing some kind of other pleasure. I say to you, I'm I'm not being critical of those things. The question is this, could you say to your own children what Paul says to the Philippians here? In good conscience, could you say to them, I love you and I long for you? Have you said that to them?
And I say, look, if all, if, if all of this lovey-dovey talk is, is too much for you, brother, I want to say to you, you better get over it because the people who are under your care are going to suffer if we don't come to this place in our fatherhood and in our parenting. And, and mothers, this would fit for you too, of course, but I know on the whole, mothers tend to be much more verbal and much more nurturing. And brothers, I want to encourage you along with myself that we should, we should take this stride. Your father may not have done it for you, and therefore it is not in your, in your parenting repertoire. But I, I say to you, when will, it, when will the pattern stop? When will you take that step to... To do this, I tell you, it's better to take your clues from Scripture than from your own father. It is better for you to follow the example of the Apostle Paul in the way that he spoke of his beloved as you try to engage your beloved. As we talk with one another among the church, do you tell one another how, how much you care, how grateful you are? Better to take your example from God who spoke these very words really of his own son. Brothers, it is better for you to, to lighten up perhaps and to love more affectionately and to give more affirmation and to express that love generously. I've confessed to you before, I know in, in my own parenting, my eyes were oftentimes too often fixed on still what needed to be fixed and what was wrong. And I didn't see as well as I should have all that was good and right. And I didn't speak and affirm and build up in those areas. Brothers and sisters, let us do that with one another as well as in our families. It is good and it is right that we would have the kind of pathos that the Apostle Paul had for the Philippians. That there would be in us a depth of feeling and a heart affection. That there would be a love for the saints here that you would think of them as your brothers and sisters in Christ. That you would acknowledge them as such. I treasure when people come up to me and embrace me and say, brother, yes. I want to belong, do you? I can't tell you the times I've sat in my office in counseling situations and heard people say, you know, I don't know, I just, uh, I'm, I'm struggling. I don't feel as connected to everybody else seems to be. And, and oftentimes I'll, I'll wait till they're done and say, yeah, me too. <laughs> because they don't perceive that this way. Brothers, let's embrace this. Let's endeavor to engage one another at this level with this kind of affection and with these words. And may it be so abundant, abundant. Didn't Jesus say, what, what, what was it that was going to tell the world and, and show the world that we know him? What would it be? Our love for one another. I know you don't get that kind of thing at the market. I know you don't get that thing at work. But here it should be a no-brainer. It's the very thing that Christ died to establish among us. We need to embrace it. Well, we need to press on and quickly. Look thirdly 
Paul calls them his brothers. He loves them. He longs for them. Beyond that, he finds great pleasure in them. And I want you to see how highly Paul regards them for their faithfulness. That's really what he's getting at when he calls them his joy and crown. And again, how parallel is this to the baptism of Christ? The father identified with the son. The father then what? Not only identified with him, but expressed his love for him. And then the father regards the son highly. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Paul does the same sort of thing. You are my brothers. I love you. I long for you. And you are my joy and my crown. What's he saying to them? Well, he's affirming them. And he says, you are my joy. You are a source to me of inner gladness, of the delight of my soul. You bring pleasure to me. That's what he's saying to them. They were a source of joy. They were a cause of gladness. Why? Well, because God not only had been gracious to Paul, but God had used Paul and been gracious to these people. And therefore, Paul took deep pleasure in them and all God's kindness to them. And he says, you're my crown. This word for crown is the, the word that, that, that speaks to a, a reward or a prize, a garland, really a wreath that was awarded to the victor at the Greek athletic games. It's used 18 times in the New Testament. There are all kinds of crowns that are spoken of. It's used often in the book of Revelation. But what sense is... The Philippian church, Paul's crown. Well, I think we can get help from that from a couple of different other pages. Let's get our fingers active. Go to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Go to your right a bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thess 2 and verse 19. Paul uses very similar language of, for the Thessalonians. He says to them, for who is our hope or our joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Now, I want you just to note a couple of things. First, Paul is looking what? At the Thessalonians, yes, but he's thinking about the future and the return of the Lord in the presence of the Lord. He's thinking about these Thessalonians and he's referring to them as his joy and his crown. Like the, Thessal or like the Philippians, they were a very pleasing church. They were the fruit of Paul's life and Paul's envisioning the day when he would encounter the Lord face to face and they would be the very crown of rejoicing for Paul in the presence of Christ. We see a similar thing in 1 Peter in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, in the first three verses, Paul is giving, or Peter is giving instructions to the elders of the church. And he says, look, you're to shepherd the flock of God among you. You're to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor is lording it over those who are allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. 
And then he writes these words. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you're just under shepherds. When the chief shepherd appears, what? You will receive the unfading crown of glory. I still remember being in seminary and the man who was preaching on this text looked over a group of men who presumably would be future pastors and he said, this crown is yours, men. This is specifically something that Paul, Peter speaks of here as coming to pastors and shepherds as Paul was. Now there are different kinds of crown and every believer is going to receive a crown for the things that they have done in this life. There's a crown of glory and a crown of life. There's a crown of joy. There are all kinds of different crowns. Every believer will get one. But this one here is specifically being given to those who have shepherded the flock of God faithfully. And so Paul looks at the Thessalonians or he looks at the Philippians. Peter here, speaking to pastors, is encouraging us to serve our flock well because the flock then becomes, if you will, the very reward to the shepherd. It's his legacy. It is his crown. Paul thought of the Philippian church as the crown of victory because he knew in their faithfulness he had not run his race in vain. In fact, Paul says that. Go back to the book of Philippians and look at chapter 2. He says it very clearly. Verse 12, he calls them then, you'll remember this, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, so you work out that fear and that, that salvation with fear and trembling. And then he tells them, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He's calling them to holiness of life, to Christ-likeness. And he says to them, you will appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that what? In the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain. I did not toil in vain. Now, again, I said this was applicable to everybody. Who's your crown? Whose life are you building into? How are you seeking to minister the truth of the word and build up the body of Christ? Who are you testifying of of Christ to so that you might see the Lord work even through your testimony to bring sinners to himself? Beloved, this is is our call, right? We carry the gospel to the lost. We, We preach the word of God. This is not something reserved simply for pastors, simply for preachers, simply for Paul or for Peter. We want to be pursuing this. We want to be pursuing that crown of faithfulness in our own ministries. Who is your joy and crown? That is a good question to consider. Now, we are very briefly going to look at Paul's pastoral direction to the Philippians. We've seen his 
his personal commitment to them. We have seen his personal affection expressed to them. Here's his pastoral direction. And it's found in the last part of verse 1 when he says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. This is Paul's direction, his appeal to them. You, dear brothers, whom I love, whom my heart longs for, you are the very legacy of my ministry. You are my joy. You are my crown. I want you to do something, though. You've started well. I want you to finish. And in order to finish, you've got to stand firm in the things I've been teaching you. And again, I've already told you in our introduction, when he says in this way, I believe he's, he's looking back and he's calling them in a, in a sentence, in a word, to stand firm in the gospel, on the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Christ and not to be moved, not by the legalists, not by those who are licentious, not by anybody, never moved off the foundation, which is Christ. We must learn to stand firm in it. Now, again, this isn't the first time they've heard that. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are what? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. And if you can go back through the, uh, the Rolodex in your mind, you'll remember that when we preached through this, we said that we must stand together, we must strive together, and we must suffer together because we will face opposition in this world. But this is something that we do, brothers and sisters, together. We stand firm in the gospel together. We need each other. And this term, stand firm, is a military command. It was something that a, a general would bark out to the, the privates that he was leading, perhaps. He would call out to the soldiers on the field and tell them, look, hold your ground. You guys are in the midst of enemies. The arrows are flying. The bombs are coming. Whatever it is, don't give up territory. The Philippians are under threat. Threats from without and threats from within, and we'll get into those threats from within in the weeks ahead. But they had the legalists, they had the libertines coming at them. There's a very real danger that they could be seduced away. I've told you before that there was great conflict in the church, and that conflict threatened to, to tear the church asunder. And Paul's counsel to them is to stand firm in the things I've taught you. It's very similar, isn't it, to what he said to the Ephesians. That's even further back in the Rolodex of your mind. But you remember in that sixth chapter and the 11th verse, Paul commanded the Ephesians to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And four times in that text, he says, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. You are not, you are not, no, I'm going to date myself here, but you are not Rambo with an AK in the Christian life. You do have the sword of the Spirit.
and we're to utilize it by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of God works through the Word of God, right? He does. But much of our lives, my brothers, is one of a defensive stance. If you grew up an athlete, you knew how vital a stance was. Coach always began the season, get in a stance, and then he'd critique it. And he'd want you wide and low so that you were balanced and strong and quick and you could move laterally or vertically. You could move in any direction. You were ready if you were in a stance. Paul is saying stand firm. And that stance, he says, is to be in the Lord. If you're going to stand firm, you're going to do it by your vital union to Christ. Again, I want to come back to Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, get this, and in the strength of his might. Be strong. It's passive. More literally, be strengthened in the Lord. Your strength, my strength, comes from another. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to be continually strengthened by him to stand firm and to, 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 to be immovable in our faith. That's what Paul is summoning us to this morning. This is anything but a call to self-sufficiency. You understand that, right? You can't just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and say, okay, I'll do it. I'm just going to stand firm. You need to stand firm in the Lord. You need to stand firm in the truth. And we are too weak on our own to think that we can do otherwise. It is the Lord Christ who is our strength. And I would ask you this, how strong is Christ? He is the one who spoke the world's into existence. He is the one who was able to resist the devil and live a perfect and a holy life. He was the one strong enough to always do what pleased the Father. He was the one strong enough and is strong enough to crush the head of the serpent. He is the one who came to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. He is the one who casts out the ruler of this world. He is the one who sets the captives free. He is the one who, who rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. He is so strong that even death itself could not hold him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul already made the point that he is pressing on toward that upward call because Christ Jesus was raised from the dead. And if there's anything Paul and you and I want to be part of is that resurrection. And he is strong enough to do it. How do we know? Because he raised himself from the dead. You can stand firm in Christ. You don't have to be another notch on the evil one's belt. You do not have to fall away. You do not have to go apostate. But you must labor to stand firm in the Lord, and that is our call. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we face strong opposition to be sure, but Christ is greater still. Don't be moved. Brothers, sisters, don't be moved. Stand firm. One day at a time, until you see the Lord.
Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Our Father, we thank you that you love us. Lord, that you've given us a place in your church. You have called us out as brothers and sisters in Christ. You've called us out of this world and placed us by your will into the body of Christ. And Lord, we have fellowship now with you and with one another. And all of that is because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to this table, I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to remember him and to examine ourselves. We remember that all of this came to us freely, but it came to you at profound cost. And so, Lord, we do not come here flippantly, but soberly. We come with a grateful heart. And, Lord, we, we just ask now that you would hear our prayers of repentance and our desire, Lord, to confess our sins before you. We pray, Lord, that you would minister to us even as we take these elements in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.